as technology shifts, we can engage in those same kinds of brainstorming or thought sharing exercises in ways that don't require physical proximity as much now as they did in the past. It really scares me that some of these companies are saying, oh no, we've got to shut down the VPN at six o'clock because we can't have people working at night. Excuse me, that, that's one of the benefits. The pandemic forced a whole lot of us into a mass social experiment, working from home. On this episode of The Pie, we'll look at the data and ask the question, will working from home stick? What impact will that have on workers, employers, and our cities? This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it slices, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And in this episode, we're going to look at working from home. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. I talked with Steve Davis, Distinguished Service Professor of International Business and Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Since May 2020, Davis and his collaborators have been fielding a monthly survey to study attitudes about working. This year has been full of dramatic changes, particularly when it comes to working from home. And the big question is, which changes will be lasting? So listen, Steve, um, to start, I'd like to take a step back and ask you about working from home before the pandemic. It seems that like the technologies that we've been using to work from home over the last year were already pretty much in existence before and one heard a lot about the advantages of teleworking and remote working, but apparently we didn't really work from home that much, right? Yeah, that's. Uh, I think you're right. Um, best evidence we have says people spent only about 5% of their full work days working from home before the pandemic. Uh, and that's across the economy as a whole. Obviously, most people did none of that. I think the technologies have gotten better, but you're right that the technologies were basically in place. We had Zoom, for example, before the pandemic. Big part of it is we hadn't made a lot of the investments by individuals and by organizations that really enable working from home to work. You know, one of the things we do is estimate just how much people have invested in, say, a home office in terms of time and equipment in order to facilitate their ability to work from home. It's a pretty big number. It's about $1,500 per person. And of course, we know that our employers are also making lots of investments in their back-end IT systems and security systems and in the cloud and in figuring out how managers can manage workers and so on. So there's a lot of investments that have been triggered by the pandemic and the necessity of the pandemic. And those investments have the effect of making us better going forward. So that, that's a part of it. But I think a bigger part of it is just the mass social experiment that the pandemic forced us to engage in. And, and so you learn something from an experiment, even experiments that you would not have conducted, but for some, some forcing event, uh, which was in this case, the, the pandemic. So many organizations were compelled to try to work from home at scale. And some of them found out it didn't work very well and they're just eager to go back to kind of the pre-pandemic approach. But other organizations, and there's lots of anecdotal evidence for this, found out that 
working from home works out pretty well in many cases for many types of activities. So they're not going to go back, at least not all, all the way back to where they were, and they're going to deepen their investments in working from home. So our survey speaks to that quite clearly. We see that there's a wide dispersion in how well workers think working from home has worked out for them relative to what they expected before the pandemic. But something really interesting about that is, on average, people were overly negative about how well working from home would work. There's a bias against working from home relative to what we've learned afterwards. Uh And this big mass experiment has eliminated this bias because we've tried something and we find out whether it works and how well it works. How big was this surge in working from home relative to what happened before? There's just an enormous surge in working from home. Basically, the the fraction of work activity that took place at home in the economy increased by a factor of 10. So we went from something like 5% of work hours being performed from home before the pandemic to 50% or even more than 50% at the peak uh, since the pandemic struck. So that's just an enormous increase. Based on our survey data, we think it'll settle in after the pandemic's over. It's something more like 20%. That's still a huge increase relative to where we were before the pandemic, but much less than we've experienced over the past year. It's, it's much larger than one-fifth of workers will work from home sometime. It's a more accurate summary of how to think about the data is about half of workers are in jobs where it's feasible to work from home at least part of the week. And of that half, the modal outcome will be something like working from home two days a week. Okay, so that's how we get to the 20% number. It's It's not 20% of the workforce will be working home from five days a week. It's more some people will be working from home one, two, or three days a week. I brought management consultant Kate Lister into the conversation. She's the president of Global Workplace Analytics, a research and consulting firm that helps employers understand and prepare for the workplace of the future. She's been making the case for working from home from the perspective of both employers and employees. A typical employer can save about $11,000 per half-time remote worker per year. And that comes from a combination of increased productivity, reduced cost for real estate, reduced turnover, reduced absenteeism, and a better continuity of operations. In other words, being able to operate in the event of a disaster. So productivity is really the issue. And for 10, 15 years before the pandemic, study after study has shown that people who work remotely are more productive. A study that we did last year, really right after the start of the pandemic, showed that people saved 37 minutes a day from interruptions. People tend to give back about half of the time they would have otherwise spent commuting. So you get your coffee, you pad into the office, you, you look at some emails and you get to work. You know, that's, that's good and bad because we also have problems turning it off at the end of the day. But, you know, when you put all those things together, turnover goes down, absenteeism goes down. Since 2000, the federal government's telework program required federal employees to work from home to the maximum extent possible, largely because of disaster preparedness. But that hasn't really happened. The, the whole idea was being able to withstand a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me say one thing. So our, our research is, is broadly consistent with what Kate just described, but she mentioned one thing that I think is a little subtle that often gets overlooked and it's worth drawing attention to, is that the ability to work from home increases the resilience 
of business organizations and, of course, society as a whole, mm-hmm. the ability to shift between a physical in-presence type of operation and one where the workforce is scattered remotely is much greater than it was in the past. And that, that is a form of resilience that I think will serve us well uh, mm-hmm. as a society uh, in reaction to other disasters that might come along. Yeah. So let me let me just shift a little bit. I wonder if how how can you measure the relative benefits and whatever costs there may be for employees, Steve? You know, often you hear things. Well, there's tacit learning that happens in the office or on the work site, or people can brainstorm and face to face better than they can in the office, or certain meetings uh, need to be face to face, and so on. Um, that that may all be true, but there are other activities like you know, figuring out, making your spreadsheet work. Those types of activities might be done better at home. So there's a real management challenge to figure out, okay, how can I accommodate uh, my employee desire to work from home, say two days a week, uh, exploit the fact that certain tasks are performed more efficiently at home while other, other types of activities are more efficiently done in the office. How can I make all that work? Uh, that's a big management challenge. One thing that's quite interesting that comes out of the survey results is how prevalent the desires to work from home part week, part of the week are across different demographic groups. So whether we cut the data by age, by by men versus women, um, by industry, by education, by earnings, um, even by whether you're Republican or Democrat, um, what we find out is that there's a substantial number of people who would like to work from home two or three days a week. Okay, now there's there's differences within those groups, of course. Um, some people hate the idea of working from home, and some people want to work from home five days a week. But for most most of these groups, uh, most people are right in the middle. They they like to work from home two or three days a week, and they say that that's pretty valuable to them in terms of what kind of pay raise you know they would be indifferent between you know, a pay raise of say 8% or working for, or the option to work from home two or three days a week. So that's what people want. But then when you ask them, what does your employer plan for you to do after the pandemic's over? Um, then things look pretty different. What you see is at the top end of the earnings distribution and for very highly educated people, their employer plans for how much they'll work from home align pretty well with the worker desires. But as you move down the earnings distribution, the gap between what workers want and what employers plan for them to do after the pandemic is over gets wider and wider. Yeah. Kate, what do we know about the impact on, on say, on health, mental health? Yeah, I categorize the savings for people in three ways, time, money, and their sanity. (laughs) (laughs) And the money part, a typical half-time remote worker saves between three and $5,000 a year. Work-life balance is greater for people who work from home. And And it's not just being able to work remotely, it's also being able to time shift. Being able to control when we work is actually more important to us than where we work. We work better in sprints than we do in marathons. I mean, who thought that nine to five would be a great way to have people work? (laughs) Some people work better in the middle of the night. Some people have children at home and have to work with them and work in between their schedules. And so being able to make that time shift reduces work-life conflict. On the other side, working from home increases life-work conflict. So having all that stuff sitting on the dining room table, having it here in the house 24-7. Those things 
actually increase life work conflict. But when you bring those two together and you ask them at the end of the day, do you want to keep doing it? Over and over and over again, the studies are showing 80 to 95 percent of employees say they want to keep doing it. Okay, so employees love working from home. Businesses are seeing gains in productivity. After the break, let's take a look at the downside. We're back, still working from home. Only now, we're going to talk about the other side of the equation. Let's take a look at some of the costs of this new surge in work from home. Who might get hurt if it becomes a new normal? For starters, I asked Kate Lister whether work from home, to overgeneralize, was more difficult for women. In terms of the toll it's taking, it's much higher on women. Let's not forget that the way people have been working remotely for the last year is not normal work from home. You, know, you don't normally have the kids home and have to homeschool them and have your spouse home and be fighting for internet and you know have stuff piled all over the, the dining room table because you don't have a specific place to work and worrying about loved ones and worrying about getting sick and all of those things that, that have been going on for the last year. That's not normal. Normal, typical is what they're now calling hybrid work. You work from home a couple of days a week or a few days a week. You go to the office a couple of days a week or a few days a week. You, um, your children are at school and you don't have to worry about that. Our research shows the same thing as Steve's. This has really taken its toll on women because women are still the primary caregivers and they're the ones that are up at two in the morning trying to finish their work because they've been being a mom or a caregiver all day. And companies are worried about this. And I, I can say from every one of my clients, they are worried about this. You know, maybe having core hours where everyone has to be available, but allowing people to work throughout the day that fits their schedule. And I, it really scares me that some of these companies are saying, oh, no, we've got to shut down the VPN at six o'clock because we can't have people working at night. Excuse me. That, that's one of the yeah. benefits. <laughs> Steve, do you, do you have any thoughts on the employee monitoring well, it does get at this issue of um, a distinction between people who work in jobs that require, that are or at least have t traditionally involved close managerial monitoring of your inputs. You know, you got you to gotta be planted at your desk so your boss knows you're working. I, I don't know how these um, technological solutions to the close close monitoring of the employee will work, partly because they, they have an Orwellian character to them that um, puts many people off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sadly, they're, they've increased substantially since the pandemic, uh, but it gets to the whole issue of why we haven't moved to remote work before this, and it's one of trust. Managers simply don't trust their people to work untethered. And so, they're not managing by results. They're not managing by outcomes. And that's something that they need to learn to do because the, these, all of these uh, surveillance tools, if you will, is just virtual babysitting. It doesn't tell them anything. I mean, the, the, the majority of online shopping happens during working hours when they're at the office. So, so does the majority of searching for new jobs. <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, Eduardo, one other thing. Sure. It really what? frustrates me when people keep talking about wanting to replicate the water cooler. 
Uh-huh. You know, we need to, we need to be using technology in a way that improves what we did in the past. Uh, onboarding is another thing that people keep talking about. Excuse me, 60% of people quit in the first two years and half of them in the first six months. Uh-huh. Onboarding wasn't working so good to begin with. Sometimes we work harder and harder to get better at better at things we shouldn't be doing at all. <laughs> that makes total sense. I haven't seen a water cooler in an office in, you know, decades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing thing that I'm curious about is, do you guys think this will have an impact on um, career paths inside Mm -hmm. corporations? Is there, you know, might you not having so much face-to-face time with your boss, you know, stunt your career path in some way? There are, I think, fears among younger people in particular who see themselves at the very early stages of their career. At least during the pandemic, they're worried that they're not benefiting from the kind of network building and mentoring and tacit knowledge accumulation that they can only acquire in the workplace itself. For people who already have this established careers, networks, and so on, that's, that's much less of a concern. That's, that's most people, of course. But at the entry level of the, of the workplace, I do hear from a lot of young, young people, um, they're, they're pretty worried about this, that they're losing out on this opportunity to build their networks and their human capital. Yeah, it's it's something that companies are worried about, too. I guess the two things that aren't quite working right are that sort of cultural connection, the sense of belonging. And the other one is the, the younger people. This has been harder on the younger population than it has on the older population for the reasons that Steve just suggested. Uh, they, you know, they may be working in a one-room apartment with a roommate. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's harder on them. Now, as companies are, are bringing their people back to the office, they're thinking about, okay, well, if just the young people come back, that's not going to do them any good. They're not going to get the mentorship. <laughs> and so they're actually you know, thinking about how to curate flexibility uh, so that the people that need to be in the office together are at the same time. Well, Steve, I mean, your research speaks kind of directly to the impact on the urban economy. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on, well, who are the losers? And it seems to me that, you know, part of the the workers that depend on these urban economies where everybody was at the office might be the first one. That's right. You know, the way I put it is there are huge challenges for the central business districts of major urban centers. Uh, those are the places that were the destination for inward commuters. Inward commuter needs has dropped tremendously. Both Kate and I think, I, I, I gather, that it will uh, remain down, or not down as much as in the past year, indefinitely. That means less worker spending in city centers. That's one thing. It also means a reduction in toll revenue from urban transit systems. And then we can already see in property price data and in rental price data, there's this, what my co-author Nick Bloom describes as a donut effect. Rents and prices have fallen in city centers, and they've tended to rise as you move away from city centers. So what all that adds up to are two, two big challenges for dense urban areas. First, there's going to be a decline in tax revenues, decline in sales tax revenues, uh, a decline mm-hmm. in the value of the property tax base. Many of these jobs that were lost um, as a result of reduced worker spending, reduced inward commuting in major city centers are not coming back. So we we need to replace them with something else, other kinds of jobs or a shift towards more repurposing the the space. So I I live in downtown Chicago. And when I look around downtown, what I see is Mm -hmm. that 
the parts of downtown Chicago that are mixed use, a combination of high rises and commercial buildings and retail shops, they're, they're doing okay now. The parts of downtown Chicago that were really um, just office towers, destinations for inward commuters and the shops that supplied services to them, well, they're, they're really still hammered. And so that gets to the big challenge for urban areas. They do need some repurposing of space. You know, there's a creative destruction process underway here, but if it's not handled properly, it'll just be destruction and not much creation. So big need for expediting business licensing, zoning variances, and the like. Uh, Mm. so that new businesses can form where the old ones disappeared. It seems to me that one can conclude that this is going to have an aggravating impact on income inequality. If it's the low-income jobs in urban centers that are being lost, it's the higher-income workers that that can work from home more effectively. What is your take on that? Steve, do you have any thoughts about this this unequal impact? Yeah, it has had an unequal impact, but I want to stress that that's not... It's not inevitable that the less educated, lower wage folks continue to bear a heavy cost from what, whatever hollowing out or shifting in the composition of activities happens in cities. It really, much of it really does depend on whether cities are successful at, at changing themselves. It might be a shift towards more mixed use, residential, commercial mixed together. The key thing is that uh, the old model of a central city is, isn't going to work as well as it did in the past. And so we need to adapt mm-hmm. to somewhat different models. And that adaptation process can happen quickly or slowly. If it happens slowly, it's going to harm the folks who, who often worked in the lower income jobs in central cities, not just during the pandemic, but long afterwards. So I think there really is a, both a challenge and an opportunity here, a public policy one, to make sure that we try to expedite the transition of cities from what they were before the pandemic to uh, a good version of what they could be afterwards. And if we, if we navigate that transition well, many of the benefits will flow to lower income people who live in those cities. So let me ask you guys one, one final question, just kind of maybe pushing back. I just want <laughs> you to contemplate this idea. A lot of what one hears about what drives the success of America's super cities is this notion that creative, highly educated people working together are more productive than when they're working in a dispersed uh, form. And so that, that there's these economic benefits from agglomeration that really rely on, you know, being in the same room at the same time. And so, and I, I understand the surveys that we've seen that productivity has increased, at least in the short term. But I'm wondering, as you know, as we move forward, the weakening of these agglomerations might ultimately, you know, end up hurting productivity and hurting innovation, which would actually then lead us to back to some more presential kind of economy rather than a remote uh, economy. So that's a, sure, that's a concern, but I think the issue is more subtle. Because part of what's happened and part of what continues to happen is that the technologies for agglomerating, so to speak, but without requiring physical presence, keep getting better and better. So, Eduardo, I gather you're in New York. Brooklyn, yep. And Kate's in yep. San Diego, and I'm in Chicago. We are bouncing ideas back and forth. 
They're going to get beamed out to your listeners who are all over the place. There's a sense in which we are in proximity to each other as we speak, even though it's not physical proximity. So this kind of bouncing off of ideas that we've long associated with intense human interactions, there's no doubt that that's, that's correct. But as technology shifts, we can engage in those same kinds of brainstorming or thought sharing exercises in ways that don't require physical proximity as much now as they did in the past. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in this series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Alan Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland. 